Hello, welcome to Outfit Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The other members of this podcast, George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe, will be joining for the second half of this episode. So the date is Monday the 30th of November, and last Tuesday, the 26th of November, the YouTube channel for Zero Books put out a video that was promptly taken down for supposedly violating community standards regarding COVID. Now, Zero Books, if you don't know, is a publisher of radical critical theory and indeed is the publisher of our book, of the Alpha Bunga Bunga book, which will be due out in June 2021, called The End of the End of History. Uh, so right now, I'm going to chat to Douglas Lane, the editor, about censorship, platform capitalism, and the left. After this interview, if you're a patron, you're going to hear our regular three articles episode. This month, we're discussing the future of warfare and drones, the way COVID has exposed the hollowed-out neoliberal state, and very pertinently, uh, big tech's attempt to curb conspiracy theories. And you'll see why that's pertinent in just a minute. Uh, now, to get access to that, you need to sign up at patreon.com slash bungacast. Uh, on there, we put out around two original episodes a month, which include uh, bonus content, occasional appearances from our regular guests, and our reply to listener comments and criticisms. Uh, we also have a regular reading club, which is accessible if you're a $10 patron. Uh, this month, we'll be discussing Christopher Lash's The Culture of Narcissism, uh, also very appropriately, and maybe we'll see why that is appropriate in just a second. Anyway, we'd be delighted to have you. Uh, now, let me welcome Douglas Lane. Hi, Doug. It's uh, great to speak to you once again. Welcome. Yeah. Yeah, it was great to talk to you uh, for our channel just the other day, and uh, I'm glad to be on the Alpha Bunga Bunga uh, podcast. Yeah, great to, to, to kind of repay the, the exchange, uh, the exchange of views. Um, so firstly, maybe uh, if you could tell us about the video that was taken down, tell us about the content of it, because um, maybe listeners won't be aware, um, and they might be thinking, well, maybe there was some, you know, crazy, outrageous stuff on there that needed to be taken down. So maybe you could explain a little bit the contents of the video. Sure. I mean, uh, from one point of view, there was some crazy, outrageous stuff on it, because it's a, it was a, a video that was meant to explore the ideas of, of revolutionary Marxism. Um, but uh, the specific reason it was taken down, the reason that was given was that it violated community standards around uh, COVID-19. Specifically, it was said to have uh, tried to dispute um, the recommendations of the World Health Organization uh, around social distancing and um, social iso iso isolation. It, it, it didn't do that uh it was not disputing the world health organization to start with it was a part of a series of uh videos um lately we've been trying to be consistent uh in the video production that we do um that i do uh, i i do a series called critical cuts and i have been taking up particular texts um and evaluating them kind of creating a series of videos over the course of a month uh, on one given book or author um, at a time. So uh, in October, I, I covered uh, Cornelius Castriotis's, uh book um, uh, and his idea about the imaginary. Uh, this month, I was looking at Christopher Lash's Agony of the Left and his ideas in general. And this was the third video in a series of videos on Christopher Lash, or maybe it was the no, it was a second video in a series of videos on Christopher Lash and the agony of the left. And what I had done was because, in, you know, when you're on YouTube, you want to make the uh, videos clickable. You want to get people's attention and you want to kind of get into the discourse. And so I, I look around online for ideas and topics that I think will uh, 
complement the ideas of the theorist that I'm working with or that I can use the theorist to comment upon. So this time uh, I decided to, t to make a video about the Great Reset, which is a real thing. Um, the, the World Health Organization, not, not the World Health Organization, the, uh, the World Economic Forum and uh, Goldman Sachs have both talked about uh, uh, there needing to be a great reset of capitalism. And many people on the uh, far right have seen this as a basically uh, the elite globalists letting the cat out of the bag that they're trying to destroy capitalism um, and destroy the, our way of life and all that kind of thing. I decided yeah. to take a different uh, approach to it. Yeah, and, and so just a thing on the, on the Great Reset, because it's, um, it's interesting to me. I, it actually seems like a far more banal idea or certainly like less um less out there than than the kind of obviously the, than the right seems to think it is um it seems to me like various proposals from economic elites and and their media representatives for like quote unquote ethical capitalism so you know uh, foregrounding right. sustainability inclusive growth um we've actually discussed this on this podcast a couple of times on a previous three articles um listeners should check out episode 103 as well as an episode on ideologies of the near future which is number 112 um i'll link to both of those in the show notes but it's something that's a, a recurring idea a way of trying to re-legitimate capitalism in in an era of, of growing inequality basically right Right. I mean, what what the bankers like the people at Goldman Sachs or uh, the people at the World uh, Economic Forum try to do is they take on kind of left sounding language to package pretty milquetoast reformist ideas um, that will address real concerns that are arising in society. So we really do have a problem with climate change. There's uh, uh, a need to I think to fundamentally change the basis for production, if we're going to address that um, in any significant way. But the you know people in in the more towards the center, people who aren't revolutionary Marxists, will come along and use revolutionary language to describe uh, you know pretty tame uh, policy proposals. Um, you know, like for instance, self policing for. Uh, major corporations and the idea that rather than just being concerned about shareholder value, you should also be concerned about stakeholder value and the impact that your production has on a community um, is, you know, uh, hardly revolutionary, <laughs> probably ineffective. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mostly just a matter of uh, public relations. Um, but when you package that together with some buzzwords about uh, diversity and um, hinting at something like reparations but not really meaning it um, and you and you throw in uh, carbon taxes and the need for a vaccine and <laughs> an investment in and in, in medicine and that kind of thing it, it it's easy for people on the far right to, to pick that all up use the fact that you've you've maybe packaged this in radical sounding language uh to create a conspiracy theory around yeah um and yeah and so this then gets taken down um so could you tell us a little bit yeah my video got taken down because i was critiquing the world health uh i'm sorry again the world economic forum uh and the progressivist version of the left or the progressive left for 
not doing enough to address these real concerns, the real problems that arise, like massive unemployment, say, or, or the social is- isolation that comes from uh, COVID-19, uh, and uh, using the language of the left uh, to to not address these problems, uh, but to enrich themselves. And point, I was pointing out that when the left allows its own vision to be hijacked by bankers and and institutionalists of, of all kinds, um, we appear to be on the wrong side of a class struggle. And that was the point of my video, was that we need to disassociate ourselves from these kinds of uh, operators yeah, uh, so, if we're going to not. Go ahead. Yeah, so how, how does this thing fall foul of whatever its community guidelines on COVID are? Does it think that you're denying? I don't. I, you, you have any they idea? haven't said. So you gain no clarity. You gain no clarity from Google, YouTube, on this whatsoever. I can guess, but they have not told me. So, so what? What, I, what is I, your? I mean, just, just you know, it's obviously outrageous that it should be taken down. But just for for the sake of having you know the, the, all the information, what 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 do you, what do you think? You know, speculating was the reason I that it provoked Alex the, Jones. And towards the hmm. first minute and a half, I put a clip of Alex Jones saying that COVID was a hoax into the video and then i also came back and said well you know it's easy to dismiss alex jones when he's clearly out of his head but on the other hand if we're going to be doing something more than you know shooting fish in a barrel we should probably try to look at what's rational or what the rational kernel is in his perspective and the rational kernel is that covid 19 is being used as a weapon against the working class just like everything else is and our society is ultimately turned into a weapon against the working class. The banking crisis was a weapon used as a weapon against the working class, for instance. So, um, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, what is clear from this is that, you know, the algorithm, the algorithm at any rate, can't distinguish between a, a rational, radical critique and a fantastical conspiracy theory. Um, right. Which, yeah, you know, we should we, we, we probably shouldn't expect algorithms to do that <laughs> at this stage. Not yet. Anyway. No. So that's but, it, but it gets to make the decision. The algorithm is making the decision about whether or not my video stays on the channel and whether or not my channel sticks around. Right? There's not a human being who's in charge of uh, you know of whether deciding whether our channel really Zero Books channel uh, gets to continue to produce content is and, and for the people uh, encounter this is something that's being decision being decided by robots or software that doesn't function very well. And and which you can't appeal to, you know, and which you can't really appeal on either, because no. it seems that there's not really enough humans behind it to kind of evaluate each case. And and so now you're left in a situation where you've got this video which has been flagged, you've got a warning. And so if you had any future cases like this where an algorithm incorrectly takes down a video, uh, your your whole channel might get taken down. Um, and that's right. a, that's a, that exercises what is in effect a really chilling uh, chilling effect on on free speech. Right. It it really makes it difficult to know what I can talk about without setting off the algorithm. I mean, it it, it would it, it, if, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really know what I can say uh, safely. And in fact, I, I don't think that there is a, a path that is safe going forward where I could just return to uh, a kind of pablum because I don't know what will set off the algorithm at all. But I, I do know that um, it make the, in this case, what I think of as a uh, 
important kind of critique, you know, backed by the, the writings of Christopher Lash, has been taken down and suppressed uh, in the name of fighting uh, right-wing conspiracies. And I, al- I also would point out that the community standard itself isn't justifiable, that I should have the right to go onto YouTube and dispute the findings and the recommendations of the World Health Organization. That that shouldn't be sure blocked. Absolutely. Um, that you know that that shouldn't be automatically against community standards. No, that's right. We need to have, in my opinion. Con- Absolutely, we need to have open contestation of of all ideas, even ones where we think you know that the science is pretty much settled and that <laughs> COVID is a bad thing. Right. Um, it you know yeah. th- and the clamping down on it uh, only encourages the conspiracy theory- theorists to think that there is some shadowy network wanting to clamp down discussion of it. So it's really counterproductive, even on its own terms. And yet, we're, right. we're, we're in a situation where I mean, I think one thing I should highlight is that you've written a blog discussing these issues, um, we'll link to mm-hmm. it in the show notes, um, where you conclude by noting that, you know, especially for the left, when we're on social media, when we're on Twitter, YouTube, uh, Instagram, whatever, we're on enemy territory. And I think that's maybe yeah. something that needs to be recognized, because we treat it as the public square, and it feels like the public square, but it kind of isn't I mean it's it's private space. Yeah, it's a private space to the to the degree to which it is moderated uh, with a political vision. Uh, it the political vision that that is controlling these spaces is what I think of as sort of a centrist, progressivist, statist vision, where the where we're treated as customers or uh, consumers. Um, uh, part of a mass rather than citizens or uh, a, a proletariat that would have a political uh, project of our own. Um, yeah. We're not given information to act upon, but we're given information that will help us continue to consume the product. Right. So it's more it's more of a shopping mall than a public square, really. And that might be a better right. way to, to go about thinking about it. Um, but yet we're, we're also in a situation which I think a lot of people are worried about fake news, you know, post-truth, all these kind of contemporary questions which have generated their own publishing industry. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that there, the rise of conspiracy theories seems concerning. Um, obviously, I don't think we should be uncritical of the rise of conspiracy theories um, or, you know, the, the growth of the recent growth of them, if, if that is such a thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, we're, we're in a situation where the default solution to that is to empower big tech to clamp down on um, conspiracy theories. And I think the, the case of your video shows very clearly why we shouldn't do that. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also would point out that while it may seem as though conspiracy theories are more uh, popular today than they have been in the past, I'm not so sure that that's really the case. I mean, 20 years ago, there were 9-11 Mm. conspiracy theories that were often enough uh, promulgated uh, by people on the left. Um, there was a Kennedy assassination. I don't know how many people believe that we never went to the moon. Uh, there's a, a, a just a, always been a, a kind of a, an approach to understanding history that includes uh, the idea of a conspiracy theory and sort of the conspiracy theory version of history. And uh, uh, overcoming it won't be something you can do by controlling information. Yeah. It will have to be changing the the 
the alienation that people feel from society. So when people start to feel like they have some say, they are participating in creating history, then it won't seem like a conspiracy enacted against against them, you know. Um, so the, again, for me, the 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 solution for uh, these kinds of problems has to run a little deeper, and I think it has to be uh, uh, more radical and ultimately some sort of movement for socialism that un undoes the alienation that sets up these problems. I also think that a lot of the reasons people give or, or, uh, for, for being so concerned about fake news ultimately comes down to not trusting other people to think there's a very elitist quality yeah. to, yeah. to the, uh, to the, the concern about misinformation. It's like, are you so sure that you, you know, the truth that you can distinguish between misinformation and the truth? Um, uh, I know that in America, the Russiagate story had legs for four years, and most of it was misinformation. Most of it yeah. was completely and and, and sustained and, su and sustained by precisely those trustworthy in quotation marks mainstream media outlets um, who are the big advocates of clamping down on fake news. Um, exactly. So it, you yeah. know the, the boundaries are very blurred. I mean, I remember when he had um, Glenn Greenwald back on the podcast back like a year ago, and we we're discussing fake news, and he just interrupted me. That you know this is this is nonsense. There's no fake news. There's it's just propaganda. You know that's what it was always called, um, and we accepted that in <laughs> in society that there would be propaganda from different political actors, um, and that we have to navigate that and, and debate the and debate things, and that's the only way you can come to any notion of, of truth, really. Um, right. And I mean, I I do think that there is. I suspect there's a growth in conspiracy theorizing or people who are more open to uh, conspiracy theories than before. And, uh, you know, certainly over the past kind of 30 years, there's maybe been a growth of that. And that's probably linked to the collapse in the authority of mainstream institutions um, and growing mistrust. And as you say, alienation from society. Um, I, th I wanted to draw in, in relation to that. Um, draw attention to another line that you wrote in your blog, which is the, the death of so socialist ideology is a material fact that is operative in the world. Um, and I think that's undoubtedly true, something that we've discussed uh, at length in this podcast. T two consequences ensue from that. One uh, seems to me that liberalism falls apart, that it collapses in on itself. Um, so one example of this is that no one seems to, you know, liberals don't defend free speech anymore. Um, that perhaps a uh, militant socialist movement put pressure on liberals to hold true to their own values. Um, and indeed, socialist movements themselves, um, you know, held elites to account uh, on terms of free speech, for example. Um, and the second one, which um, is perhaps slightly more complex, but which is basically that, as you've already hinted at, that without socialism, that people are increasingly treated like idiots, like passive receptacles of information, um, that eight people's agency is denied. So at best, you're a consumer in, in the shopping mall of, of social media, but you're not a, you know, an active participant uh, in a public square. Yeah, I think that um, I, I agree with you on both counts. I'm, I'm a little unsure as to the, the degree to which the radical project for socialism uh, was always able to move the liberal center to be true to its values and to, I, I think that 
probably the liberal center uh, was always the enemy of the radical <laughs> project, and that you know that being true to their values was uh, uh, when that when that happened, it was for a variety of, of reasons, uh, historically contingent, maybe. But but um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I think when I think about that, I think yeah, maybe you know in in. I don't know, like Western Europe or North America that may be held true to a certain degree. And then I think about the global South. I think about Brazil, for example. I think, well, no, they were never, <laughs> the liberals were never held true to their values. That's nonsense. They were just turned to ever more extreme. So yeah, no, that's, that, that, that I mean, in the, in, in the 50s, the House of Un-American Activities Committee was not only uh, the the uh, domain of the far right. Uh, there was a, a large contingency of liberal anti-communists mm. and, and uh, there was, there's always been a debate about what you can really allow into the public sphere, but there were institutions that did form that tended for a while to really be true, at least to that value of free speech. And I'm not an expert on this, but the ACLU, that has seemed to change lately. Yeah. The, that institution. Um, but, uh, you know, to, but to work out exactly how that project for socialism uh, affects the liberal center um, uh, you know, it would be difficult. And I think here's my real concern about that. I think that once you start to act, to, to, to make claims like, oh, the project for socialism is the only thing that keeps the liberals honest. <laughs> what you're saying is we're the loyal opposition to the liberal center. We don't have a, a project of mm. our own. We don't have a, a, a grasping after power of our own. Um, we are, our goal is simply to be the far left of the of the liberal establishment and, and to try to pull it back towards its core values. And my, my take would be, no, we really have to take hold of this idea that we're not them. They are not our friends. We're fighting those people and we want to beat them. Um, that, that's, that's how I, I feel today. And, uh, uh, I know that for a lot of people to say you want to beat the Democrats and just destroy them makes you sound like a Republican. But that just shows how how uh, distant the socialist dream is from even people's imaginations today. No, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's very well put. Um, and I guess maybe just just finally, I think you know when whether we're talking about whether the liberal center ever truly held up its own end of the of the bargain, held true to its own values or not, um, we can leave to one side. But what I think remarkable in the current moment is that the liberal left um, or left liberals, um, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, themselves have have really abandoned free speech, and I think that's maybe the something which is a definite, yeah. definitely chartable uh, historical trajectory over the past you know sixty years or so. Um, this kind of gradual abandonment of you know free speech, probably the most foundational of of those values, um, yeah. which leaves us in this in this really tragic situation. Um, but I think, as you say, maybe and just to give you the final word, I mean, I think it it does seem to be the case that you know, kind of the socialist project would need to be the ones upholding uh, free speech and realizing those values because yeah. no one else will. Right. We need uh, to have open discourse and real debate and uh, the free exchange of ideas to develop our own project. We won't get anywhere if we uh, aren't allowed to both speak in public and speak freely to one another. And um, th so that, uh, from my way of thinking, unfortunately, uh, defending free speech values uh, the, and uh, trying to create a culture of, of free communication and free thinking um, is fundamental. 
uh, and uh, I'm not always very good at it. I'm very quick to block people on Facebook <laughs> you know, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but uh, I, I uh, still nonetheless um, uh, feel like it's a core value. Absolutely. Very good. Um, I would encourage listeners to also check out the video that was taken down. Uh, of course, nothing like uh, censorship to make something seem really uh, especially appealing uh, and dangerous. So go check it out. We've uh, linked to it. It's still posted on um, Zero Books Patreon. Uh, now that it's been taken down from YouTube. Right. And, and it's it's free there. You don't have to join the Patreon to see it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So thanks very much uh, to Doug. Uh, maybe a discussion we should carry on uh, in another point in time as well. Uh, and thank you for listening, listener. And for patrons only, here is George, Phil, and myself on three articles on big tech and conspiracy theories, the hollowed out neoliberal state and drone warfare. Hello, citizens of the Republic of Bunga. The date is the Sunday, the 15th of November, though this episode is coming out on the 1st of December when you're hearing it. If you're one of the new kids around here, firstly, a big welcome. And secondly, my name is Alex Hochili. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where it's election day. Uh, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK, where it is not election day. So what could you possibly be doing on a Sunday uh, if you're not voting? Just uh, Sunday lockdown 2.0. What are you going to be doing? Yeah, it's, having, it's having dark already at uh, half past four in the afternoon here. So yeah, it's pretty, it's, the living is easy in, in <laughs> London. Um, tell us more about this election, though, Alex. It's more interesting than us staying at home and uh, eating and watching TV. Yeah, no, right. Well, no, the, the election the election will be interesting. Uh, maybe we should do a little thing on it in a, in a future episode when we know the results. So th- today will be the first round. If there's a second round needed in the various cities, uh, it'll be at the end of the month. Um, and so it's all the cities in Brazil electing mayors and council councillors. Um, and the interesting thing, I think, to the extent that we can see a trend based on polling, at least, is that all of Bolsonaro's candidates uh, are not going to win, um, and especially in the big cities where he has... Um, hmm. where he's back someone seem, they seem to have plummeted in the polls so that's good news um, interestingly though it's not his own party because he didn't even manage to set up a party and he left the party that he won the election with in 2018 so he's gone and picked people who are whatever his type <laughs> around but they're, they're from a variety of different parties and of course parties in Brazil don't really mean anything because it's entirely promiscuous and um, in terms of swapping members swapping ideologies etc um, but yeah, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that probably it's kind of a swing back to the center, therefore. I mean, the center-right. Um, in Sao Paulo, you know, the biggest city in the country, probably going to elect center-right mayor, though uh, Guilherme Bolos, the leader of the homeless workers movement uh, and a candidate for the Party of Socialism and Liberty, is looking likely to make it into the second round. I'm about to go out and vote for him. Um, so, you know, that that should be um something to to look forward to that's kind of some progress and and quite important um but it's also relevant to note that it's in a context in which the pt the workers party the main left-wing party uh is nowhere and is looking like they won't win any kind of mayor uh mayorality mayorality whatever you call it uh in uh in in any of the major major cities so that's that's quite a striking downfall for the pt right yeah, I mean, it's still continuing. It's a continuing decline, right? I mean, 2018, 2016 was already a wipeout in those municipal elections. 2018 was likewise, although at the presidential election, you know, they still managed 45% in the second round, but, you know, still pretty much blown out of the water by, by Bolsonaro and the Bolsonarista wave. Now the Bolsonarista wave is uh, pulling back. 
Um, and so it's kind of the old center-right, basically, kind of reestablishing itself. Um, that's what it looks like. Um, and, and the left, yeah, with, with a couple of maybe brighter spots here and there, um, more promising elements, you know, but basically it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a happy picture. Um, but it's just interesting to maybe also to look at in, in a kind of the wider context of whether that kind of right populist wave of the past five years maybe is receding to a certain extent. I don't know. Cool. Well, yeah, don't don't forget to vote. Make sure that you uh, wear your your I voted badge. Well, you know, it, for the next, uh, voting, voting is voting is mandatory in Brazil. So it's not really like one of those where you, you know, you forget to vote. So um, though the consequences of not voting are, are, are uh, pretty minor, but it's still obligatory. Anyway, uh, should we get started? Uh, this is a three articles, as uh, you can tell by the label on the tin. Uh, Three articles, if you don't know it, it's a bit of a show and tell. We each bring an article to discuss, which we think is important, uh, particularly relevant or just interesting. Um, and then we discuss it. It's a little bit like a, it's a show and tell, like a, like this is our OnlyFans, basically, you know, um, except only verbal. No, no pictures or video. Um, so that's, that's something you can enjoy. Uh, if you can't get off it's to not, this, if you so can't, it's not really that much. It's not. <laughs> it's not really that much like OnlyFans. Then, well, I mean, if you can't get of off to this, like you know, call, call your sexologist. You know, because uh, it's uh, the problem is yours. It's entirely yours. Um, right. So we've got three themes to talk about this month: uh, war, conspiracy theories, and uh, the state. Um, more specifically, uh, drones. Uh, big tech's relation to conspiracy theories and uh, the hollowing out of the state uh, and how COVID has exposed that. So I'm not going to say any more. I will allow uh, Phil to drone on uh, about the article that he's chosen. Oh, 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 oh. Our resident drone expert. <clears throat> so drone comma expert. Um, yeah, so this is a... Um, it's... What? We got any more? <laughs> No, I was just oh, saying, have we got any more jokes on this? Any more drones? I can't think no. of any. Yeah, no, 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 now it's... you're droning on, you see? That's the problem right there. So um, your preemptive drone strike has got in the way of me doing my drone strike. So this is a piece in the Washington Post by Robin Dixon, and it's called Azerbaijan's Drones Own the Battlefield in Nagorno-Karabakh and Show the Future of Warfare. So um, I'm sure many of our listeners will have heard that there's been the brief um, six-week or so long uh, battle in Nagorno-Karabakh, a disputed enclave in the Caucasus. So it's an enclave which is of our ethnic Armenians, which is surrounded by um, Azerbaijan. And um, it's been in dispute since the fall of the Soviet Union and a frozen conflict since then. And the conflict has recently ended in favor of Azerbaijan. They've overrun, they effectively were on the brink of overrunning this the enclave. Um, and what has been picked up on and widely um, discussed is the their use of drones in um, picking off, uh, both in overcoming the um, kind of rusty Soviet era uh, defenses, air defenses that the Armenians had, and also in completely destroying Armenian armor on the ground. The conflict itself um, is, in fact, I mean, it's part of the long shadow of Uncle Joe himself, because the enclave was um, established in the territory of the Armenian. So, um, sorry, the, it was established in the territory of the Azerbaijani Soviet Socialist Republic under the terms of Stalin's um, nationalities policy when he was commissar uh, for nationalities in the early Soviet state. And so it's one of these many um 
effectively squalid ethnic disputes, um, which is the overhang of the end of the Cold War, and has now effectively more or less been resolved, as I say, with um, um, in favour of the Azeris. Now, there are some other kind of, before talking about the detail of the article and its uh, the military kind of significance, just to um, draw out some of the details of the politics. So the Armenians are kind of um, more or less on the side of the West, in that they have uh, they've um, tried to kind of ally themselves um, as a Western-facing democracy, um, aspirant to join Western transatlantic structures, where, whereas the Azeris, oil-rich, um, very strongly supported by Erdogan's regime in Turkey, um, and therefore it's seen as part of the wider um, military kind of uh, military-infused Turkish expansionism of recent years in Libya and in Syria and in Iraq. And so this is another way in which um, Turkey is expanding its regional influence in its support for the Azeris. The conflict has been solved with um, a kind of a deal, it seems, between Turkey and Russia, so that Russia is going to deploy peacekeepers. Um, there have been a long list of Russian peacekeeping missions in the former Soviet Union, and now they have an expanded one which will deploy around the um, remaining um, Armenian enclave in order to protect it. And effectively, Armenia has been um, further integrated into the Russian sphere of influence, now dependent on Russian power and Russian protection and patronage in order to um, defend its ethnic compatriots in this enclave, which has now been effectively um, chiseled away and a lot of its territory annexed, taken over by the Azeris. So it's all a kind of um, a messy and grim picture generally. What's interesting about, aside from the kind of the politics of it, what's interesting about it is the role the drones played. So the Azeris deployed um, Israeli and Turkish drones to great effect. And the figures are given in the, um, the figures are given in the, um, in the piece itself. And, so the confirmed losses, um, which is to say confirmed by the international press with the photographs and videos uh, used by the um, deployed in Azeri propaganda, but which are taken as credible, they list Armenian losses at 185 tanks, 90 armored fighting vehicles, 182 artillery pieces, 73 rocket launchers, 26 surface-to-air missile systems, including, I think, some very uh, some very sophisticated recent ones, 14 radars, a warplane, four drones, and 451 military vehicles, and over 2,000 um, losses for Armenia in very kind of short succession, and also, importantly, out of a population which is very small. Um, so significant losses for the Armenians as a result of um, a use of low-cost technology. And so this military and strategic significance seems to be that smaller states can deploy um, drone technology, even smaller states who can't afford all the um, infrastructure and logistics that come with sophisticated air forces can nonetheless deploy um, sophisticated, cheap, low-cost um, air force assets effectively to wipe out um to wipe out um, enemy forces on the ground, including enemy armor. And so many people are paying close attention to it in terms of what its significance might be for the future of warfare elsewhere. Oh, God. Yeah, definitely a... Um, thank you. Thank uh, you for the... A sales the, victory. Thank you for the yeah, sales victory. What? Sales victory for the, for the makers of drones. I oh, mean, right. it's... Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, at least the way that this um, 
piece puts it, there is that kind of cheap access to tactical aviation, that kind of um, um, a bit like the argument Mike Davis made previously about the car bomb, that it's kind of, um, there's something interesting in it because it represents a, a potentially kind of equalizing access to, um, to force. Um, and yeah, so I think there's, it's, I mean, the numbers are, the numbers are quite shocking. The video that's embedded in the piece is, is pretty, um, is at one and the same time, it looks a bit like a video game and, um, as all like drone footage does. And it's, you know, it's quite shocking, but also quite, um, sterile in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, it's an inter- it's an interesting piece around is the era of the traditional tank over a third of Armenian tanks were destroyed. Um, yeah, and I guess that's a question it raises, right? In in terms of the technology of war, is this the is it particularly for smaller states or less uh, ones with fewer military resources? Is this going to be the next step in in um, international conflict? Yeah, the other element of it, I guess, which is um, you know, I mean, I guess drones are associated with the American Empire. They're taken as the kind of the supreme statement of the impunity and um, technological kind of extravagance of American empire, particularly under Obama, when he relied so heavily on drone strikes in um, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen um, and Africa as part of the um, kind of effortless way with which um, the U.S. can eliminate its enemies um, silently, effectively from the air without any of the, um, you know, kind of military necessity of occupation, ground forces, all the rest. Um, And so I guess the other interesting element of the story is the fact that here the story is about drones, but with much smaller less, um, you know, geopolitically in kind of um, far less geopolitically significant states and far from being mighty imperial powers, they're um, client states of neighboring major powers, regional powers. And so it's another, it's an interesting new angle on the use of drones, like you say. And there's been some back and forth on Twitter and on social media, which I haven't followed so closely about whether or not the age of the tank is over. Um, But certainly I haven't seen anything to say as to how, how states might in future defend their armoured forces on the ground from this these kinds of attacks. Um, people who say the age of the tank isn't yeah. over haven't made clear how the tank would be defended in future. Yeah, so I mean... This is, this is something which is raised in the piece. Yeah, go on, Alex. Well, no, I mean, I, I was also struck by... I mean, the, the question that we're kind of talking around, I guess, is the cost of war. I mean, both both um both in, in economic terms as well as in human terms uh that yeah as phil already said that for powerful states particularly for the united states uh although at large economic cost uh the human cost of war for it has been relatively small you know that the u.s can and, and other powerful states can carry out war uh with uh you know not exactly surgical precision as they imagine themselves, or at least as the propaganda says, but, you know, with relatively low casualties. I mean, there's this obvious uh, asymmetry there. And what? how does the drone potentially change this of cheap access to drones? Um, I mean, it means that the cost for perpetrating war by small states um, against even, you know, potentially, I guess, larger, stronger enemies is increased. Now, I, I guess my the thing that that uh, that prompted the question that that prompted is whether that means that we're gonna that makes war more or less likely. I mean, does this um, maybe Phil as the IR guy? It, yeah, um, has has any take? No, on that? I I have a I have an opinion. I may or may not be an IR guy, but my opinion is still valid. I would say. Um, and that it it changes the political cost as well, of course, because the more that you have 
mediating technologies or various, and this is, you know, hardly the first uh, technology to fit into this category. But as soon as you have technologies that mean you don't have to mobilize people to, to, to do things, to, to move around and drive around and things like that. And it, it, it does change the political costs of, um, of, of doing a war because the, the mass mobilization of, uh, of infantry and of the population is not necessarily required at the same level it was, it was previously. So you could say there's a, I mean, there's human, technical, economic and political costs are all obviously shifting as well, the technology I mean, I would, is introduced. But by, by human costs, I didn't actually mean, you know, concern about the humans. I mean that the political costs of human costs, right? That if you have a lot of body bags that that bears a political cost, then people might not be willing to support that war. Uh, if you're able to just do it mm. via unmanned drones, that changes the calculus to a certain degree. Now, does that mean that both that mean both that small states fighting one another or even small states fighting powerful states are able to, you know, fight off by drones? That means that basically uh, populations on, on both sides now are, are much more vulnerable. Um, or does this act as a deterrent for both sides, yeah. you know? I suppose, I mean, the, you know, another thing the piece picks out is that the the um, drones have also been used to great effect by Turkey's um, or by the uh, Turkish proxies in Libya, in Libya's ongoing civil war, um, that they have destroyed um, the so-called Pantsir S1A defense systems, which are the Russian defense systems used by one of the sides in Libya's civil war as well. So there's growing kind of precedence for all of this. Um how far it lowers, you know, the broader questions about how far it lowers the political costs of war is um, it's a hard one to gauge, I guess, because it's um, a very different scenario here where the Azeris are directly taking over territory that they claim um, and have long kind of staked a claim to. Um, it's a frozen conflict, which is very different from the kind of the use of drones in you know, the way the US has used drones to eliminate um it's uh, to assassinate effectively its enemies around the world without staking any claim to um, occupation, having to set up kind of governing structures on the territory that they take over. So um, it's a very, yeah, I mean, it's an entirely different kind of model for um, the use of uh, the use of drones in a particular context. The only other thing I suppose to add is that um, it's important in as much as it's a, a res, another resolution of a frozen conflict and a revision of borders, um, a territorial revision of borders in Europe. Um, and that this is now the third time, I suppose, it's happened um, since um, the turn of the century. And it, a lot of it, I think I would make the case, can be traced back to NATO's war um, over Kosovo in 1999. Um, and that this has laid the precedent for the use of force in peripheral areas of Europe, these small kind of um, dirty ethnic wars, um, and I say dirty not to kind of belittle, not to belittle um, uh, the peoples and issues involved, but only to say that um, kind of short, sharp, nasty civil wars um, that are far from the major kind of powers of Europe and their concerns with all of their kind of insular conceited um, uh, interests. And but that nonetheless, that uh, force is being used to uh, revise the territorial status quo in Europe, which the West has sought to claim has only been um, that they've, you know, that they've uh, sought to freeze effectively. And also at the same time to accuse Russia of being the only one of the ones to use force as a, in order to revise the territorial status quo. 
Um, yeah. The precedent being set with NATO in 1999 and um, seized by the Russians in the 2008 war in Georgia, um, and now subsequently um, in favor of the Turks, effectively in favor of the Azeris in this other frozen conflict. Yeah, no, very good. I mean, I, I, I think that's uh, that's very relevant. I, the only I wanted to add one tiny thing that struck me from this was how consequential the Syrian war continues to be, um, and how it how its consequences have spiraled off in so many different directions. I mean, the you know the obvious one in terms of it being something which is a bit more which is directly caused by the war, but which is not, doesn't relate to war itself. I mean, is the refugee crisis, and we discussed the consequences for Germany with Wolfgang Streich in a recent episode, uh, jihadist recruitment and the whole uh, impact that the Syrian war had on the growth of jihadism, the, to the extent that Turkey now used uh, jihadists and, and former fighters in Syria uh, as mercenaries in this war between Armenia yeah. and, and Azerbaijan. Uh, and and how much how how much strength in Turkey has been um, from the Syrian experience? I mean, Turkey was already pivoting away from the West and towards uh, its uh, its neighbors in the Middle East. Something which is quite uh, significant in 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 terms of a pivot in in Turkey's foreign relations. Um, but now it it that kind of that pivot seems to be have been justified by events insofar as it uh, the kind of destruction of Syria has really strengthened Syria's hand in the region um, and also made, I think, has now allowed it more autonomy from Washington as well. Um, so there's so many different pieces on the jigsaw board of change as a consequence of the Syrian war. And, and probably there's more consequences down the road, which we haven't even foreseen yet. Yeah. Should, we move, should we move on to the next piece? Yes, let's. Yep. Okay, so let's move on to my piece. Uh, this is a piece by Gillian Tett in the Financial Times. How can big tech best tackle conspiracy theories? Um, the subheading is, uh, it's, it's about more than separating dangerous theories from less dangerous ones. Um, so the article notes that, firstly, that there's an increase in conspiracy theories or a, se- a seeming increase in it, um, which is a question that we should maybe probe. Um, the bulk of the article, though, deals with the fact that Jigsaw, which is an arm of Google, and a consultancy carried out ethnographic research on conspiracy theories uh, as a way of complementing their existing kind of big data approach to looking at how conspiracy theories and probably fake news more broadly spread on the Internet. Uh, this the, the, the kind of learning from the ethnography which Gillian Ted pulls out and I should note actually that Gillian Ted herself is an ethnographer um, who's written books on the ethnography you know basically ethnographies of finance and financiers um, so obviously it's a particular interest of hers so the things she pulls out uh, are from this research uh, we obviously don't have access to the to the full findings uh, yet or maybe we never will because it's proprietary but um, but at least in terms of the presentation that's been given, um, Gillian Ted pulls out a couple of things. I mean, th- the first one being that what matters is criti- is conspiracy theorists rather than theories. And so the obviously the ethnography was a study of cons- conspiracy theorists, that is both consumers and producers of conspiracy theories, and, and most likely um, people who are consumers also spread it. So they're you know there it's obviously a, a whole kind of ecosystem of conspiracy theories there. Um, and that, therefore, the response to this, um, following this ethnog- ethnograph- ethnographic research, is that one, logical arguments uh, are, are probably insufficient, but uh, emotional cues may be more successful. So maybe kind of using emotive 
uh, reasoning uh, can convince people to uh, to be disabused of of the conspiracy theories they hold to, um, as well as the kind of the extant uh, approaches used by tech giants, which is known as the four R's. That is removing uh, you know removing content that uh, they feel shouldn't be there, uh, relegating in search results uh, conspiracy theories, raising uh, in search results those things which are seen as more as seen as kosher, uh, and rewarding those who uh, indeed kind of rewarding sites who to appear higher in search results um, sites which debunk theories so they they cite a meta a site called meta meta debunk or something like that I now forgotten it I don't have it in front of me um, which debunks conspiracy theories so what do we take away from this so I think there's two questions which suggest themselves um, and the, so the first one relates to big tech and what the role in is in all this and the second one is a broader question about conspiracy theories and whether they're growing and why so maybe we should deal with the first one first um, should we be concerned about big tech's interest in this initially you know you think it's kind of creepy right I, at least that's my initial reaction on the other hand i think it's important to remember that there is no neutrality right that these platforms are not purely neutral um, representations of the digital world which they then are subsequently the owners of these platforms going in and trying to um, manipulate in such a way as to remove conspiracy theories these platforms are already deliberately shaped right they're already shaped by what the big well effectively by what big tech wants you to see um and therefore the fact that they correct it isn't some isn't some intrusion on a previously neutral world i think that's a kind of an important thing uh to take away um guys you found this creepy though right i mean do you guys want to comment on this before we deal with the other questions well i yeah just just on this on this point like i think having google deciding what's a conspiracy and what's not I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I Googled, is Google trustworthy? And the, all the top results were, yes, very trustworthy. It's fine. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Um, no, but I think I think this is the, the, I guess, the limitation of this article. And I guess in general, this response is looking for a, you know, a technical response, which um, even, if it, even if it has these um, four R's or these kind of seeming like um, neutral or, or te- technologically defensible process, of course, it's, it's still putting power to to determine what is a quote and uh, conspiracy um, unquote and what is not in the power of um, tech firms and as you said Alex this is not is exposing something which is obviously has been the case previously but it's not it is it is creepy right that this is this is the the way that you know tech big tech is going to respond to this supposed problem by putting their um, authorized judgment uh forward as as the uh way to decide or the way that people should use uh to decide what is trustworthy and what's not trustworthy information i think i mean so you're i mean there are two things that are creepy about it so i mean you know obviously um i take your point alex and you know it's well made and well taken about the fact that um uh you know this shouldn't this, we shouldn't um, treat this as if this is the as if this is the entirety of the story. Rather, it just simply reveals um, how uh, consciously structured um, the whole kind all of cyberspace is by the tech monopolies. Um, and so, the fact that they're manipulating search results around um, conspiracy theories only goes to show the fact that they manipulate all the data that we see. So, you know, it's a good point. I suppose what's 
what makes this kind of so creepy though is the um you know it is simply the effect of kind of pulling away the veil so uh, analogous i guess in some respects to you know the effect of kind of reading wikileaks or something like that but everybody knows or you know imagines that they know all the kind of the seediness that occurs um in western us diplomacy um cia rendition sites uh, what have you all of that but actually kind of reading the sordid details um gives you a kind of a nonetheless gives you a different perspective and it's a similar thing here the effect partly comes from simply being rendered visible but the the other element that's the other elements that are creepy to it is just how much effort is put into this. I mean, they so you know they have. She she makes the point, Gillian Tett in the piece. It's an enormous kind of research effort is invested, is sunk into um, exploring why people um, you know um, um, who are powerless before their tech overlords why they end up believing strange things. You know, like um, essentially, you know, people who um, succumb to uh, these strange and bizarre wacko ideas, um, you know, living in highly kind of um, politically and socially alienated circumstances and being treated as um, as lab rats by anthropologists and data scientists on behalf of these enormously powerful, sinister corporations. Um, So that's creepy. The other thing that's creepy about it is she talks about it as if it's entirely unproblematic. There is not uh, ever a kind of uh, an inkling of an idea that the there might be kind of all sorts of problematic consequences for um, freedom of speech. Um, the fact that the um, that the tech kind of the tech oligopolists have this much power to begin with, it's simply you know this very kind of uh, very neutral long read mag- FD magazine recounting the overwhelming power of um silicon valley in um with respect to data and obviously she assumes it's never going to affect her or her readers i mean that's very evident from the tone and the content of the piece it's, um, it's actually it's just just so in, intercede with one thing it's it's interesting because what what is portrayed is precisely not that silicon valley is all powerful i mean that you only get kind of reading a little bit between the lines what is on face value is that these companies are really struggling to present um, no, the right. truth, right, or present a yeah. neutral platform, um, and so yeah. they're really up against it, and they're trying their hardest. So it's actually, you know, the, the presentation is actually yeah. not that they're complete domineering overlords, but rather that they're struggling little guys trying to, you know, fight yeah, this wave right. of, of conspiracy um, theory. Yeah. And even yeah. even more than that, they've they've been um, in some ways quite humane um, and <laughs> yeah. showed their philanthropy yes. in, in going and doing this research, ethnographic and research. As well. Why is it that the Rubes believe in flat Earth or Pizzagate? Yeah. You know, what is it that's, you know, how have you been damaged that you believe in this, in all of these political conspiracies? Um, and that's, I guess, what it what it is. It's it's market research. They um, it's not surprising that there's a lot of uh, energy invested into research um, in, which finds out how people respond to information, given that this is such an important part of Google's uh, role and, and business model. Um, and I think there were some interesting points in there that that uh, conspiracy theorists um, tend to trust uh, scruffier rather than more polished websites it's kind of interesting I wonder what I wonder if we're going to see a lot of scruffy uh, websites pop up with various um, yeah. Google friendly messages uh, and if anybody has read a Tom McCarthy novel Satin Island where it's a really good um, portrait of a uh, basically a, a company's in-house anthropologist and all the stuff that that this character ends up doing um just 
yeah, the, the application, I guess, of some qualitative research methods to to kind of really get at why is it that some people just don't um, don't think that uh, Silicon Valley's interests are, are the only thing that uh, could possibly be believed by sensible people. And I suppose just to be clear about the kind of political implications and consequences, which, um, you know, are significant. So the, I mean, the very fact, so, you know, Trump's kind of, um, kind of nonsensical allegations about the um, manipulation of the vote in the US, for instance, that um, so many media platforms um, effectively sought to censor an elected president of the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful man in the world, for making his allegations rather than letting viewers judge for themselves. I mean, so it was, uh, it's, and, you know, and all of this, I mean, it's been widely kind of mocked on social media as well, efforts by Twitter to kind of call into question these allegations. Um, so, I mean, it's not, it's not neutral, far from neutral. And in addition to that, I suppose, is also the, you know, it could have consequences with respect to, say, um, COVID-19, right? So, so um, if I, they, you know, kind of if they try and crush anti-vax nonsense, if they simply kind of um, uh, use, you know, kind of a sledgehammer to um, wipe those uh, theories kind of off the web and drive them off the main kind of search engines and into the dark corners of the internet and so on, it will inevitably backfire. So I think, I mean, the consequences and the political consequences of that are significant as well. And, so, so and just, then finally, obviously, well, just to, so if I could just quickly make the final point is that all the examples she gives are the typical ones you'd expect, kind of um, essentially um, how the um, how the tech overlords of Silicon Valley are going to buttress democratic rule in the next four years. Um, and this is, I think, presaging all of that. Um, so it's kind of Republican, um, Republican voting, Trump supporting um, kind of freaks and weirdos in flyover country. The rubes, like George said, who support all of these crazy ideas. How are we going to control them? And um, because, you know, she doesn't mention any of the kind of wacky um, conspiracy theories which have been promoted, say, like Russiagate um, by the Democrats or indeed by um, European That's not conspiracy theory. That, that's just the truth. That's just what happened. You, yeah. You're confusing the, those two sorts of things anyway so it's very you know the lack of clear kind of ability to contextualize it um in america's partisan conflict um and it's very clearly that this is part of what will be part of the biden harris um regime effectively will be the ethnographers and the data scientists um at jigsaw kind of plotting how to manipulate the web essentially so, I mean, just quickly on anti-vaxxers, because I think that obviously will be maybe to presage a discussion we're inevitably going to be having on this podcast uh, a little ways on the road, because w once the vaccine is there, we'll see what happens. But um, I'm not sure that relegating search results around kind of saying that the vaccine causes whatever kind of negative side effects or whatever the conspiracy theory might be um, would be unsuccessful. I think it might be successful because I think it might it is genuinely successful to relegate it, that it, relegating uh, search results. so People don't find it. But I do agree with the wider point that a heavy-handed response to anti-vaxxers will just confirm people's suspicions, and therefore um, that needs to be dealt with very carefully. I think just as a broader point, the state response around anti-vaxxers needs to be very firm but calm as well, and I think the messaging needs to be uh, carefully thought through here, because I think simply 
shouting people down or coercing people will breed the opposite response. I have no moral problem with forcibly uh, vaccinating people. I have a political problem in that I don't think it'll be successful. I think it'll have blowback. Um, I think the point that Phil raised, or rather the the kind of um, correlate with, you know, basically Twitter censoring Trump, putting a content warning on his tweets about uh, the electoral allegations, raises an interesting question, and I'm in sort of two minds about it. If you see social media as the public square, as a digital public square, then it's completely illegitimate for Twitter to put up content warnings because it's not for Twitter to decide between one type one type of content and another. It's not for it to adjudicate. It's a public sphere. It should be free. Um, it's up to us to debate uh, the verity uh, or the veracity or otherwise of different claims made in the public sphere. If, on the other hand, you see Twitter, Facebook, and so on, not as public squares, but as media, you know, in the same way that you might see as a CNN or a New York Times, then it has an obligation to say what it believes what the truth is. In fact, one of the problems of, of recent years has been kind of media not wanting to kind of piss off people and therefore not actually t- uh, asking difficult questions, not saying, you know, as, as the typical example goes, you know, if, if one person says it's raining and the other person says it's not raining, that the obligation of the journalist is not to say some people say it's raining, some people say it's not raining, but it's to go outside and look. I think that's, that remains true. And in, in a certain sense, if you see if you see Twitter and Facebook as actual media rather than as kind of this public square, then it is an obligation of theirs to basically ver- verify factual claims and set them straight. So, uh, you well, know, let, I, I mean, let, I'm sort of in two minds about that, despite the fact of the obvious ridiculousness of trying to censor the U.S. president, you know. It's, I suppose, um, let's but let's be clear about this as well. I mean, so I think it was the U.S. news channel MSNBC that cut off um, a a broadcast from the press room when Trump was making these making his allegations, um, and they simply stopped broadcasting when he did that. So I mean, they're entitled, obviously, to say that these are nonsense when they analyze them and they have their, you know, their um, various kind of freak show hosts can say what they want about what they view about them. You know, they're obliged to give us the analysis, but they're also obliged to to broadcast the news as well. And so, if this is what the um, of what you know a political leader is saying, let's see what he what let's see what they have to say. Yeah, um, uh, and I think, I think that's it's... similar to Twitter as well because they're, um, you know, there's people retweeting these things, and it's not necessarily um, it's the partiality of it. So you know, there's so much stuff which Twitter doesn't publish with a content warning. Um, they've clearly made a concerted political decision that they're going to consolidate the, they're going to kind of help the Democrats effectively to. Um, um, ease Trump out of the White House, um, being concerned about a prolonged transition, as the rest of the corporate world is. Um, so there's all of that kind of to do with it as well. But it's also, I think, it goes to show that they are more public square than um, than medium in the way that a news service is. Well, I think they they're sometimes one thing, sometimes the other, and it depends on what um, um, what best serves the the interests of 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 those media organizations yeah. because sometimes it's really hitting hard the uh, the public service ethos and responsibility to to be to do certain sorts of reporting and truth and blah 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 and other times it's yeah. it's it's not it's like oh yeah private organization have have you know who owns it these people have the ability to make decisions and 
and operate however they want within a marketplace. And if you don't like it, then get your news somewhere else. So, I mean, they're obviously hybrid organizations. One thing which I, I came across just to change the topic ever so, well, not change the topic, but um, just to go back to something we were talking about previously, the it's really interesting, the YouTube official blog where they talk about their kind of, the, the language which they use in terms of essentially explaining how they will um, censor um, content. So, you know, redu- uh, again, remove, raise, reward, reduce, reduce the spread of content that brushes right up against our policy line. It's quite it's management speak. Um, but it's just, it's just an interesting blog post. And I'll put this in the comments um, of, of the episode, but just the, uh, they are sort of, obviously telling the story that the increased um, removal of comments, termination of channels, removal of videos, that this is good, that this they're, they're doing this at scale um, is good for the community because it helps keep the, it helps keep the community safe and help keeps, uh, helps keep the, um, the material, uh, the right sort of, of, of stuff. So it is interesting how I think, you know, you have all of these different things working in tandem. We talked about, you know, the, the qualitative research, you have the, I guess the, the stories that these platforms are telling about how their, their work of um, curating is in everybody's interest. So yeah, it's, um, I guess there is that hybrid quality of the public square and the private platform. And that's, that's what we're, <laughs> that's what we're facing at the moment. Yeah. Should we move on? Well, I wanted to just draw on the second question that I um, briefly that we I think should discuss a little bit, which is about conspiracy theories in themselves. Uh, it's interesting that the article notes, or at least based on the research, that it's people themselves which are the issue rather than the ideas. That is to say that it's conspiracy theorists rather than the conspiracy theories. Um, I think that stands to reason because um, it would, it's not that the power of those ideas which are able to win people over, um, but rather that people themselves are already have a prior mistrust of mainstream institutions and therefore attach themselves to alternative interpretations. And I think, you know, that, that that's probably self-evident and that's, a, that's obviously a, a kind of basic kind of materialist understanding of it rather than being a, an idealist one. Um, so I think that's correct, but I think that obviously points to the wider question, which is the issue of mistrust in all institutions that is um, that is a feature of our times. In fact, you could probably even go further and say that the, the crisis of our times, you know, the end of the end of history, um, is not just a social, economic and political crisis, but it's also an epistemological crisis. There's, you know, very deep fissures and debates over the status of knowledge. Um, and that's you know, that's obviously not been created by conspiracy theorists. It's been uh, driven by, you know, postmodern academics who, you know, cast uh, aspersions as to the nature of truth itself, um, as well as by the state and its absurd claims that it makes, um, and the the kind of basic disintegration of society that's going on, such that... um, such that people don't trust in institutions, and of co- and and that's obviously what's at root and is what is behind all of this. I think behind uh, the growth of conspiracy theories. So, I mean, my my hypothesis, I think, you know, because I think the article starts off by asking, you know, has have conspiracy theories grown, and then it cites someone saying, no, it's kind of a constant. I think that's obviously nonsense. The you know there there's a waxing and waning of conspiracy theorizing, and I think it's growing in our times right now, precisely because of this disintegration. Of, of society that's going on that people just simply don't trust um, simply don't trust mainstream institutions and I think you know that maybe there's a populist temptation to say 
well, you know, that's that serves the elites right, haha, you know, like they can't control the rubes anymore, right? But I think it is a conspiracy theory theorizing to the extent that it is growing and becoming quite a significant issue. Uh, it represents a problem for all radical and progressive politics, um, as anybody who uh, will have tried to debate with conspiracy theorists will, will know. You know, you might start off with a discussion of them kind of buying your arguments around the fact that, you know, say, you know, immigrants are not your problem. It's actually capital that's unable to provide uh, jobs and a good standard of living for everyone. And they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. And it, because of that, behind that all is the Illuminati, isn't it? And then you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I've just wasted. <laughs> I've just wasted 15 minutes of my life for this discussion. Um, and we're back at, uh, we're back at square one. Um, so, I mean, it, it is, it is an issue, but obviously, um, big tech's maneuverings uh, in in order to kind of quash conspiracy theorizing uh, is not going to lead us anywhere good either. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's, just, yeah, just to agree briefly, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it, And that's why this response is is tackling the symptoms rather than the causes, because unless you try to address the lack of, of trust in a variety of different sorts of institutions, lack of authority in politics m- more widely, you're not going to stop conspiracy theories. You're going to change the form that they're expressed, maybe make it a little bit more difficult for information to be disseminated through certain platforms. But the, obviously the, the root causes that lead people to these sort of structures of thinking are going to be going to remain untouched. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, George, before I pass on to you to describe your article, uh, Phil, you wanted to come back on something from the first piece. Yeah, and oddly, so it came to me thinking about what we were just talking about, about the, um, the I suppose, the kind of the, um, the domineering attitude towards the rubes. Um, the other point, I suppose, which is worth drawing out about um, the peace deal that has resolved the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is to say that the enclave has been kind of um, has been shrunk, and now it's protected by Russian peacekeepers. And both Turkey and Russia have their power kind of strengthened in the region with their patron client states as Azerbaijan and Armenia. And it's the reinforcement of this great power politics, effectively, the patronage politics and also trusteeship politics that you get the um, the rise of protectorates. And again, this goes back to the NATO war when Kosovo was made effectively a United Nations protectorate um, until it declared independence in 2008. And now is effectively a protectorate of the European Union. Its sovereignty is kind of formally restricted in all sorts of ways. It's dependent on NATO, on a NATO um, army for its security. And we see the similar pattern now. So the end, the Armenian enclave in Azerbaijan is going to be um, protected by Russian peacekeepers. And Armenia is now firmly dependent on a Russian guarantee of security. So this rise of uh, protectorate politics, the spread of protectorate politics is also um, signals paternalism in international politics, um, the consolidation of paternalism in international politics. And that's not down to Putin and Erdogan, but it's down to the liberal paternalism developed in the humanitarian interventions of Western states since the 1990s and over the 2000s. George. Yeah, thanks. Um, so my article for three articles is um, by Larry Elliott in The Guardian on the 11th of November, and it's called The COVID-19 Blunders Drive Home a Harsh Truth, The State Has Failed Us, um, and a longer version of a of an article with some similar arguments um, is up at the, the Full Brexit website, um, which 
Larry is a supporter of and has spoken at uh, events of, um, Larry being the, the economics editor at The Guardian, and this longer piece um, written by uh, Lee Jones, Pete Ramsey, and myself. Um, but on to uh, Larry Elliott's piece. So I think the central claim here, um, which I, I would say probably goes against a lot of the um, analysis presented in, in in that newspaper, is that the second lockdown has been a sign of the fundamental weakness um, of the state. Um and so the the article goes on to have a look at the UK's particularly poor handling of um, COVID nineteen, uh, having one of the highest uh, death tolls per head, um, and also a variety of of um, associated costs of of the lockdowns. Lockdowns plural now. Um, cancer patients being untreated, around two and a half million um, incidences of severe mental health problems, increasing massively, doubling in, in some cases. Um, and so Larry makes a point that the second um, lockdown is a, is a different situation because when we went into the first lockdown, as he, as he says, you could be, uh, if you wanted to be particularly charitable, you could say, well, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't, we didn't know if it was going to work or not. Um, but now we're in a very different situation because there's no evidence that the lockdown worked um there is evidence of other costs so there is a um there is a kind of political puzzle here there's there's something which requires explanation which is um why was a second lockdown um opted for by by the british government and i think there are sort of two main sorts of explanations here which are probably usually given one is the kind of incompetence uh, or corruption uh, explanation which is basically the boris johnson is a is a bad man with a capital B and M and he wants to give all of his Tory mates or or their their spouses um, very lucrative contracts this certainly has happened uh, no doubt about that but I think the the deeper explanation is is a structural one um and that structure mainly concerns the the, the British state so the core functions of planning and organizing public services um have been stripped out have been um hollowed out in in the past um 20 30 years um and so now you see situations where um certain <laughs> aspects of the coronavirus response outsourced to consultants and private contractors with um mckinsey uh netting a, a cool uh 560,000 um for developing uh the vision purpose and narrative of of test and trace which nice work if you can if you can get that um so yeah i think they could just to, to kind of round it off um bring you guys in and, and see what see what you think but the the conclusion of the article essentially that the use of um pr has been quite prominent um in in the british state's response to coronavirus and i would agree it has been treated as a pr crisis not necessarily a political one but certainly in a public health and an economic one as well um and so that the opposition has been very surface there hasn't been a political alternative response instead there's been various point scoring or various kind of technocratic critiques um and then the slightly perhaps unexpected conclusion or the last the very last part of the article is larry says that it's uh, only the military is it's the only um remaining part of the state that can be relied on to still do things properly which um isn't is not where i thought the conclusion of the article was going to go but i think it's food for thought as well so yeah i think it just um this is a is a good article to discuss because it it draws on some important themes and i think puts its it puts its finger on on it yeah you know the state has failed us uh, in in many countries but particularly in britain and you know i feel this quite acutely uh, recording 
um, in in the in the increased dark now uh, as the afternoon wears on in the middle of the second second lockdown. Stay stay with and us, with George. Poor, stay with us. <laughs> with very poor glitchy, with very poor glitchy broadband. Yeah, fucking the infrastructure in this country. I'm in London, this, the 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 nation's capital, the metropolis, and the, the, the my internet is is worse than not that, you know, you should should com- make this comparison, but worse than Canterbury, <laughs> worse than Sao Paulo. You know, yeah. London should be leading the world with all the digital blah blah blah. It should. So, London's <laughs> had enough. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I'll, I'll I'll try and stick in there for this discussion. Um, have another can of coke. It brought it brought to mind. Um, it brought to mind actually. I was thinking about this earlier. Like, um, so back when I was giving uh, I was giving a kind of a poorly attended um, presentation at an academic conference, the British International Studies Association. Back when I was uh, early 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 years of my PhD. So this would be. Um, I suppose late two thousands um, around then, um, and it was um, around the time of the foot and mouth crisis when in Britain, where they brought in the military to deal with it because the Department for Agriculture wasn't able to deal with the scale of the slaughter that had to be carried out to prevent to prevent infection, um, and it was deeply controversial and kind of problematic in the countryside. And you know, and what I remember anyway, I made the case then we were talking about state failure, and I made the case then that the Reliance on the military in the case of the of Britain already um, signaled the type of state failure, um, and that was kind of a, something of a shadowy mirror of um, of state failure in um, in the more typical kind of discussions of that scenario in West Africa, connected with peacekeeping and intervention, the kinds of things which is the bread and butter of um, my day job. Um, anyway, and obviously this was kind of uh, met with kind of. Um, kind of derisory snorts and um, kind of mocking smiles from the audience. Um, so it's interesting, I suppose, many years later to see the kind of the narrative and the analysis gaining greater um, traction. Um, I mean, I never did anything with it, but I suppose my point is twofold, that there are deep roots to the crisis and the lack of capacity of the British state to deal with some of its what a basic kind of um, um, institutional and infrastructural um uh, questions of capacity that it already was relying on the military um, way back when, you know, kind of um, to deal with, uh, an, you know, kind of an agricultural, a case of agricultural contamination and had to rely on the military to resolve that. Um, and you were already indicating, like I say, that weakness. And then I suppose um, the other element of it is always with these failed state kind of scenarios, when we talk about the failed state, and this was an argument that Aris Rusinos made for unheard with respect to the riots in the US over the summer and the failure of the US state to adequately deal with the pandemic as well. Um, it's always this difficulty of how we understand state failure, because obviously we think of state failure, we think of Somalia, um, or maybe we think of, um, you know, I don't know, Liberia or something. And then there's like an intermediate stage of state failure, which is like, you know, say the failure, the fact that the favelas around Sao Paulo are completely not kind of incorporated into public infrastructure or into the state in Brazil. And then we have kind of full on state failure or the kind of original form of state failure in the West with George um, kind of unable to get his broadband and the inability of the UK state to even to mount kind of an adequate test and trace system or to throw up enough infrastructure in the months over the summer. One of the wealthiest countries in the world can't throw up enough infrastructure over the summer 
um, to prepare for the return of the of uh, the infection in the winter and instead has to put us all in a lockdown again. Anyway, I suppose what I'm getting at is how do we transplant these? I mean, I think, you know, I agree with Larry Elliott. Um, I agree with the kind of the longer analysis made on the full Brexit by um, Peter, Lee and George with respect to Fade Stalia um, and that George already mentioned. But there is a deeper question of kind of transplanting the scenario of state failure from places like Somalia into the inner city US, into the favelas of Sao Paulo and into Britain in a second lockdown. It requires, um, you know, it requires us to kind of rethink some of those basic categories. Yeah, I mean, I so I agree with that absolutely, and I, yeah, reaching for state failure. I think it because it runs against what I guess would be the common sense understanding, as you say. So it, I think it's it is something to be thought about a little bit more. Uh, what what I liked about this article is that it is, does not just reach for the default libertarian complaint about lockdowns, because that would be maybe in some ways put the cart before the horse, because. To uh, to seize on the authoritarianism, I mean, as problematic as it is, uh, prompts the question, uh, which authoritarianism, you know, for whom and to what ends? Because not all, authoritarian is, all, all authoritarianisms are the same. Um, and, you know, the state does have authority to do certain things and to respond to a crisis such as uh, a pandemic. I think that's, you know, that you'd expect that the, if, if there's a minimum of what the state should do, it would be precisely uh, it would be precisely this. Not to say lockdown specifically, but to be able to mount a response uh, to the to 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 the pandemic and be able to um, coercively move people around or things around uh, as needed. But what the the kind of the prior thing behind this, and which is what uh, Larry Ellis piece draws on, is the neoliberal hollowing out of the state, um, and and that this happens kind of at all levels, both in terms of actual physical capacity, uh, as well as, and perhaps most shockingly, the absence of strategy and purpose. Um, so even in a kind of ideological um, or moral sense, that there's a, just a complete lack of idea of what they're meant to be doing. Uh, and that the thing that he cites there, that McKinsey had to come in to tell them, you know, basically do consultancy on what their purpose should be, is uh, is shocking. I mean, it, it genuinely shocking. <laughs> just like, how do you, why are you paying for this? I mean, you know, and obviously it's a whole mm. ecosystem which is enmeshed within itself. So it's not as if it's even a choice. It's just the way things are done, right? You get the consultants in. It's, it becomes yeah. a reflex. Um, so you have to go through a procurement process and then, you know, yeah. you, you know, no one gets um, demoted from the civil service for hiring in McKinsey. So, yeah, go for them. Well, exactly. And you need to, you know, you need to prove to, uh, you know, your superior that the choices you've taken have been scientifically backed. So you need some external authority to come and tell you that that was the right decision to make, which, of course, again, is a complete outsourcing of authority on the part of the state. The state should be deciding this itself, obviously. Um, so... I think, again, I think it's good that, that it puts that kind of hollowing out of, and I think rather put it the other way, the heavy handedness of the lockdowns need to be seen as a consequence of that rather than just seen as like, this is the state doing thing that, that the state shouldn't be allowed to do. No, the state should be allowed. To, I mean, you know, the state does have the authority in theory to do things like this, but the problem is that it's completely useless as you say you know the the, the fir if the yeah. first lockdown was perhaps justifiable uh or at least understandable if not justifiable the second one is not mm. yeah and i think it 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 makes you and i think this draws on phil's point as well makes you think about the the relationship between the idea of political authority and uses of the word authoritarian and i think this is 
why it's a really good article as well, because it the central claim that second lockdown is a sign of weakness, not strength, is is kind of requires a bit of um, chewing on. But it's absolutely correct because it's not a um, it in in one formal sense it is uh, the state does appear powerful, you know, putting citizens under house arrest. Um, that but there there's a paradox there because th- how is it possible for this? To happen at the same time as a massively reduced capacity to solve logistical, technical, medical problems, um, it's because this specific exercise of of authority is entirely negative in one sense. It's a demobilization. It's basically telling people to do something, but what is it that you're being told to do? Nothing. Just sit at home. You know, just you know, stay, stay, uh, stay home, save lives, protect protect the NHS. It's not a it's not a um, project which requires authority in that in that sense because there's no binding behind a specific um collective response there was in the case of the first lockdown and in the early days of coronavirus response in the uk there was a lot of people mobilizing saying you know they want to help want to get involved want somehow to contribute to their communities care or organization or something like that but of course that's not the way that it happened instead it was um and and we've made this point before it was in it was entirely a demobilization rather than anything positive and i think just a comment on that it's amazing that i think you know people this probably applies generally but certainly my experience from britain is that people are very keen on having some collective project to rally behind you know that people would like to believe in something and therefore you know the lockdown was like okay here we're all together this is a crisis let's all this this will focus minds and we all need to pull in and 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 do it together right so there is something positive there at least in that response um of course possibly for something which was not uh entirely useful and in in one where you know the citizenry is turned into completely you know passive objects basically of policy um, and that's that's really the problem there, you know, as you've as you've highlighted already, George. Mm. Um, yeah. I wanted to say something about the military really quickly, um, and I think Phil's right to draw draw. You know that that is quite actually um, a good point you made back in two thousand nine. You know about about the, the military coming in to resolve a kind of fairly yeah, sorry, mundane crisis. Just to but, just yeah. to jump in, sorry to interrupt you, Alex. Phil, you said that your story would like the lessons were twofold, but obviously the third lesson was like. I was right. I had the last laugh. I said back in 2009, <laughs> this thing was later proved correct. But don't worry, we, we all we all knew that that was the implicit uh, third part of the argument. Sorry, Alex, you can... <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, so, I mean, I, my my point that I was going to make, I, maybe this is obvious, but this is where the, de- the, the degradation of democracy leads, right? That you have very few institutions that seem to function and you're left with the most hierarchically... Uh, organized, least democratic institution in the country um, needing to be brought in. And the problem with that is not just that it leads to kind of an empowering of the military itself to take on further civilian responsibilities. And I say this, you know, as a Brazilian and in Brazil, uh, very keenly aware of the way that this has been used in Brazil, right? That the, both in terms of um, Bolsonaro's authority and as well as the bringing in of the military to try to deal with uh, the kind of disorder and, and, and crime in Rio, which of course it didn't do it things actually got worse um but you know it killed a lot of people so you know uh, if you're if you're measuring success based on those metrics yay the kill count is is up so you know pats on the back all around um but so i, I mean i obviously don't think that you know the uk is in a situation uh, comparable to brazil in terms of you know the the authority of the state and, and state failure and whatever you know the the british state is much more capacitatious is that a word you know it has greater capacities um but that empowering of the military, you know, and that the degradation of democracy making the military look good is not just a question of the military 
being given over or, or rather be invited in to take on greater civilian tasks, but that maybe, and you know, this is a, looking a long way down the line, that military modes of organization come to be seen as increasingly attractive. Um, both by both by people by by kind of more conservative minded people perhaps, but also by um, but also by 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 um, by politicians, you know. And I think that's still a very long way away. But that suddenly you think, well, look, why does the military work and nothing else works? Well, it's because they have you know vertical integration, they have hierarchy, and they have command. So maybe we just need to have that more of that kind of thing in society. And that's the that's the real uh, worry there. But vertical integration is that. Is that right? Do they have vertical integration? I thought that was when you buy a product or you buy, you buy a supplier that you previously had. Well, no, no, I mean, it, they're all they're all networked now anyway. They're all like the officers have all been reading their. Is it? Is it? No, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, or is the military yeah. now networked and and horizontally integrated with? Yeah, uh, horizontally you know, integrated, yeah. and they all go on to um, they all go on to like jobs, and they you know I mean obviously none of them believe in the nation anymore. They'll all go on to jobs in uh, working as security for risk consultancies or, um, you know, kind of, I don't know, working, you know, kind of being able to organize supply chains at major corporate headquarters, whatever. Yeah, well, <laughs> but, but the post-modernity runs deep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess just maybe, and we could probably talk about this for, for a long while, but I just had one maybe final thought or final reflection on this is essentially what, which I think it's unrealistic or or unfair to expect uh, everything to be covered in what's quite a short article, but I don't think it really gets at why the state has been hollowed out. So it's like clearly this is a, a symptom of something that's happened, but what's the what's the cause? Um, and I think yeah, I mean this this is something we have touched on pre- in previous episodes around the effects of neoliberalism, the effect of the European Union the changes in political parties and associative forms of life that Peter Mayer talks about. Um, but yeah, I think that's an important part of the, the puzzle because unless you touch on that, then the solution or the response is uh, very difficult to see because I think that's one thing this probably this article doesn't really provide, not that there is an easy solution, but it doesn't say, right, okay, this is a massive, this is an example of, of, of state failure, but what's the solution? Is it just to have more, just to have yeah, more more military. Um, that but, seems like it's another thing stepping into the void. But didn't you leave out precisely what the, is the most important element of that puzzle, which is that capital no longer needs the kind of uh, developmental state or, you know, the kind of national state that uh, was required in earlier phases, uh, in earlier phases when you needed the state to organize production, perhaps, um, and take a greater role in, in managing the economy and kind of uh, neoliberal, you know, financialized capitalism. You don't need, you know, you just need the state to do the just the very basics, and uh, it doesn't need to have any other responsibilities. And that's what the state has given itself over to. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, as I said, it would take quite uh, quite a while to to discuss this. I personally think the political explanation is not more important, but I I think it's primary. Those the, the changes that I mentioned. Are, obviously the, the the requirements or the um structures re- needed by capital are are important but i think looking at the political level is is absolutely crucial because that's where the ability to um, to to in some ways organize a political project which can attempt to um redress and f- fill this void that's where that would begin so i think the 
the idea of the developmental state also there's some i would say some problems in applying this in in britain but yeah i mean that's another that's another discussion uh, which maybe we maybe we should we should get into at some at some point well, i was going to say i don't think i mean i don't you know i think seeing it as some um, a kind of um some instrumentality of corporate um of uh, you know corporations uh, i would say it goes the other way right it shows how deeply pathological capitalism in the early 21st century is so that even in western developed societies that it's so um you know kind of uh, generations of uh, hollowing out of basic kind of public capacity leave us in the situation where even very basic security functions of the state um can't be done effectively in one of the wealthiest countries in the world um one of the you know um yeah one of the wealthiest kind of most technologically advanced countries in the world and that in itself i think is it doesn't speak to anything um instrumental or um intentional i think it rather speaks to the irrationality and degradation the very the fact that um uh, capital itself is antithetical to very basic social function and social functioning um decades of organizing around principles of market-based efficiency and contracting basic um, public services out leave us in the position where um very minimal state infrastructure and social infrastructure isn't functioning um effectively or is just so you know kind of degraded and wasted away that there's nothing there um even in a country like the uk and that seems to me to it doesn't speak to any uh you know it's not as if it's something which um is uh, shows the benefit of one scenario of the other i think it speaks to the pathology the sheer kind of um yeah irrationality of the situation as a whole indeed and that's uh that's how you end up with uh, the state effectively just being a purveyor of of drones while uh, the citizenry engages in conspiracy theories to try to explain uh why things uh, are so degraded in our time while they're in lockdown while they're in lockdown was, exactly yeah um, you brought it all around you brought so, it yeah, all together synthesis bitches <laughs> uh, all right neat. that's that's why you're the 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 host guy you can do the synthesizing yeah yeah some Nice synthesizing on a Sunday. Uh, all right, that's it for now. Um, this has been a three articles. Uh, thank you for joining us. Catch you later. Bye-bye.